right, now if you're joining us at home online, it's good to be with you this morning. If you missed last week, make sure you watch Trey's message. He did a great job with week four of this series. But Trey started off his message talking about something we did as a staff with some axe throwing down the city of Syracuse. And he showed this little video clip portraying me as this like master marksman with an axe. And so I need you to know that I, it's true that I started off hot, uh, but when it came to the game, which is called King of the Hill, I cooled off real quick, and lo and behold, the true master marksman on the Eastern Hill staff is none other than Austin Mosden, our worship arts director. But when you do fun things like this as a staff, you learn things about people. Like, for example, I learned that Mary Bach, who serves on staff, is like a ninja when you put a knife in her hand. The anticipation's killing you, right? There we go. All right. So it's blurry because after we got done uh, with axe throwing, they took up the knives. And we were, everyone had got the axes down and everyone's struggling with the knives. But put a knife in Mary's hand and watch out. I mean, she took that thing, zoom, and it hit the target. And so you need to know that if there's ever a battle on the front lawn of Eastern Hills, go and find Austin and go and find Mary and we'll be well taken care of. All right. Now, that has nothing to do with today's message. It's just fun facts. Uh, this is week five of this series as we're looking at a book in the New Testament. It's the last book in the New Testament, Revelation. And the series thesis is this. You just need to know that Jesus loves you significantly. Like so much so that he gave up his life so that you could experience a love that will never disappoint you or a love that you'll never be separated from. And so if you know that Jesus is for you, and as you open up the word of God and you sit in conviction, you can walk away saying, ouch, that helps. More so than ouch, that hurts. And so each week in this series, there's a specific message to a church. And it's a letter given to us by Jesus through John. And this week's Ouch That Helps message is this. It's possible for everyone but Jesus to be convinced that a church is alive and well. So the church in Sardis was so focused on legacy and what they had done in the past that they were missing out on the opportunity that God had for them right now in the present. The reputation of the church was that they were alive and well. They were doing great things. And yet, from Jesus's perspective, his perspective was that they were dead wrong. And so this morning, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter three. I'm gonna read verses one through six. It says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and it is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, 
but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's start with some geography, because I think it's helpful to kind of set the scene. This is a modern-day perspective of ancient Sardis. One of the things to understand here is that the city was set up, and the roads uh, was kind of a military fortress, if you will, because it was 1,500 feet above the roads. So it made this impregnable fortress when it came to those that might be attacking. But the other thing we need to understand is the location of the temple and that they worship the nature cults and this, this perspective that you're born, you die, and then you're reborn again. So there's pagan worship that's taking place within this community. But the thing that it was known for was the production of wool clothing. In fact, its location made it a strategic place economically. And so here we have Ephesus, right? And Sardis is right here in the hub. And so with each one of these churches, they are connected and there's roads that all connect into this central hub of Sardis. Now, <clears throat> what takes place is that uh, the, the tides shift and Sardis and all of its booming economy is no more. And they're a fraction of what once was. A modern day equivalent would be Gary, Indiana. Some of you are familiar what happened to Gary, Indiana in the 60s. The height, the boom of the steel industry. It was known as the magic city. I mean, people dressed up, entertainment, architecture, booming economy. Steel industry wanes, fades away, and now we know Gary, Indiana by name and what once was. The same is true of the city of Sardis. And the church had been reflection of the city. And so, reputation, oh, things are well. Things are alive and well. Jesus says, not so much. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you're just jumping in to the Bible, like it's the first time you've been to church in a long time and you've not read through Revelation before, it's, under, it's important to understand that it's known as apocalyptic literature, which is a fancy way of saying that there is prophecy, things that are yet to come, but there's a lot of symbolism. And that symbolism is rooted in historical cultures, uh, cultural references, but also references back to the Old Testament. And so here we have some symbolism, the number seven in the Bible equating to perfection. The number seven is important in the Bible. But here Jesus is pointing to the presence of the Holy Spirit. The God of the Bible is one God, uh, one being, three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in a church is significant. Because if the Holy Spirit is to be removed from a church, it's no longer a church. It's no longer connected to the living God. Because in Acts, when the church starts, it's through the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in his ministry pointed over and over again, I'm going to need to leave so that someone else may come. And he was pointing to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit arrives and boom, the church explodes. But we often get confused about the Holy Spirit because the way that we speak about him is through the context of feelings. Or we talk about the Holy Spirit as if he's a force that we can uh, manipulate through our mind or willpower and like Star Wars, if you will. But the thing about the Holy Spirit is that he's a person and that he feels. And so the Holy Spirit grieves. In fact, in the New Testament, we read that when a church deviates from the truth of the scriptures, it grieves the Holy Spirit. 
When a church allows anger to control their actions, it grieves the Holy Spirit. When the church becomes known for gossip or slander or hearsay, the Holy Spirit weeps and mourns and it breaks his heart. But also, when a church proclaims the gospel and people come to know Jesus and a church is raising up leaders and sending them out and communities are being transformed because of the saving work of Christ, the Holy Spirit celebrates and rejoices. And so on mornings like this, in just a minute, as we celebrate baptism, there's much rejoicing through the Holy Spirit. But here, we're reminded that the Holy Spirit is working with Jesus to support and hold up the leaders present in this church. Not every scholar would agree, but many would say the seven stars are a representative of pastors or leaders leading during this time. And so it's true that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are raising up leaders. They are sustaining leaders, but also awakening leaders. Because the message is this, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Ouch. That helps. It says, wake up, strengthen what remains. So there's good news, there's optimism. There's still a remnant there following Jesus. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So here's Jesus' solution. Remember. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. When we hear the good news or when we hear about the gospel, oftentimes we think about it as the thing that the pastor or minister or communicator says at the end of a service, leads people through a prayer, gets people to raise a hand or come forward. But that's not all that the gospel is. The gospel is something for us each and every day. Years ago, when I was starting to be a pastor, I was handed uh, a book called The Gospel Primer by a friend. And the whole premise behind the book is that we are to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. That each and every day, we preach the reminder that we are sinners, that we do fall short of a holy God, that God has his standard and we fall short of that. But we need his grace and we need his mercy, and he has given us that through the work of Christ. But we need to remind ourselves that our gravitational pull is not to love God and love others. It's to do the opposite. So repentance is something that each and every day we're changing our thinking about who God is and what it means to love him and love others. Because when we stop doing this, we deviate and drift from his purpose. He says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, when I was 19, I was living out in California with my grandmother and my cousin. In the middle of the night, it's like 2, 3 a.m. in the morning, I hear this boom, boom, boom on the front door. And so I awakened because we had one of those like metal, metal uh, screen doors, and so it was pretty loud. And so I go, and I'm like looking out the window to see what's going on, and there's this woman outside of our home. And again, bam, bam, bam. So I open up the door, and can I help you? And she's convinced that this is her house. I mean, she, she was convinced that we should let her inside the house. And there was no, no way of getting her away, so I closed the door and called the police and sat down on the living room couch. And in the living room, there was a door that you could enter into from the back patio. So I'm sitting on the couch, 
And here comes the door, swings wide open. And mad Martha is right there in front of me. And she's convinced that this is where she's supposed to be. And I'm trying to like be a negotiator, like, ma'am, you're gonna need to leave. I've called the police. And I'm yelling at my cousin Chris because he's in like the metaverse of video gaming. Like he's just checked out. So I'm banging like, hey, come on, buddy. I need your help. He comes out, sees the situation. And of course his natural inclination is to go and get his Rambo knife. And so he comes in and the two of them are now like going back and forth. And I'm thinking, this is real life right now. And of course my grandmother, who's hard of hearing, finally awakens to the scene. This is happening. She makes sight with me first thinking, why are you up? It's late in the morning. And then she drifts with her little curls in her hair and she just starts screaming like, ah! Finally, the police show up, take Martha away. We didn't sleep the rest of the day, but here's the point. I didn't get a notification that Martha was going to show up. Because the way that thieves or those that want to break into your life operate is they don't send a text message like at Tuesday at 2.30, hey, Rob, I'll be at your house. If you could just get your valuables out and put them out on the table, that would be great. We'll be in and out. You're like, you won't even know that we were there. That's not how they communicate. They show up unexpectedly in a most vulnerable state and they hurt you. They harm you. And the thing is, is we didn't know that that back door was unlocked. We thought we were safe. We thought we were secure. We thought everything was well. And often in our lives, we're so convinced of lies and things that aren't true, and we have that experience. Things show up unexpectedly, and we're not prepared. Jesus is saying there's still time to repent. There's still time to change your thinking, but there's good news. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Again, what is this community known for? manufacturing of clothing. And so what they would do, those that had temple worship, is that they would dress themselves in all white clothing and go and worship this false god, which was the complete smack in the face to Jesus. Because Jesus says that he's returning what? Dressed in white. So Jesus is saying some of them have not given in to this false worship, some of them are still following Jesus, so there's still hope. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Jesus reminds them, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. You know, this is an interesting topic of debate, the book of life. Some people debate, is the book of life a literal, physical book, or is it symbolic? I've sat in coffee conversations for hours debating such a subject, but it's the wrong conversation to have. We should be spending all the more energy in discussion around, how does your name get into the book of life? Because the truth is, we can know a lot about Jesus, and not know Jesus. The demons had an understanding that Jesus was God. It was a demon-stated faith. But a demonstrated faith 
is where there's allegiance to him. Where we say, Jesus wasn't just God, he's Lord. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I submit to him. I'm with him. Not just intellectually, but my life is centered on him. That's the choice we make, and that's how we get into the book of life. Now, the second important question is, can your name be removed from the book of life? One pastor says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I think about it in the way that I think about my kids. I love my kids a lot. And when we go out to large crowds or the city and we're walking on the streets, I will hold their hands. And occasionally they'll say, Dad, you're holding my hand really tightly, like you're squeezing my hand. It's like, yes, because I love you and I don't want any harm to come your way. I want you as close to me as you can so that I can yank you back in case something's about to happen. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has a tighter grip. His grip is so tight on your life that nothing can separate you from his love. The once your name is in that book, it's forever in that book. It doesn't matter how far you drift. When you pledge allegiance to him, you belong to him. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news that people need to hear. This is why Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, it's interesting, the church of Sardis did not experience persecution. In fact, one theologian describes this church as decent, good people with a dying, decaying witness. Like the way that they talked about the church from those on the outside looking in, hey, they're good folk, they're good people, but they wouldn't risk anything in the name of Jesus. I don't want that to be said in terms of my life, and I don't want that to be said to be true of our church. And so here's how we move forward and make different choices. Number one, we honor the past, but we don't live in it. Some of us have scars in our past, and it's important to grieve the loss of life, the loss of seasons, things coming to an end. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to have an appropriate season of grieving. It's okay to be excited about great things that God has done in your life in the past and to celebrate that, to remember that, to look back on that. But we don't live in the past because when we live in the past, we miss out on the present. We miss out on what opportunities God has right now, right out in front of us. And so let's talk about what that looks like for us collectively as a church, but also individually. Collectively as a church, it means that as we follow Jesus, we stay true to our mission, but we're open-handed with our methods. Some of you are familiar with the story of Kodak. Kodak had a choice to make. Digital photography rises to the surface. What will we do? And they chose to double down on film photography as if their mission was to capture uh, memories on film, when their mission was just to capture memories, period. And that choice to allow their methods to trump their mission crushed them. As a church in March of 2020, like most churches, 
Everyone was focused on churches, what happens here. But God did something interesting. He reminded us that the definition of a church is not a building. The definition of a church is not a service. The definition of church is God's people, his saints, gathered in his name wherever it is that we go. And so as everybody scrambled to figure out how to do ministry, all of a sudden people were like, we need to do church online. We need to have Google Meets and Zooms. And we adopted our methods because we stayed true to the mission. And as a world changes, as it always changes, we have to be willing to ask hard questions. What would, be willing, what would we be willing to cancel or change in the name of reaching more and more people for Christ? Because we want to honor the past. We want to minister in the present. So that's our mindset as a church, but we don't get there unless we make a commitment individually. We set aside what we want for what he wants. Before I met my wife, uh, Kirsten, in my early 20s, I was engaged to a gal. And I was convinced that this was the person that I was supposed to marry. And I had people in my life saying, you're wrong. <laughs> this would not be a good thing. I had a mentor that was saying, you're wrong. This is not a good thing, but here's the deal. In Bakersfield, there's not a lot of things to do. So what do young people do? They get married. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Not so much. But this funny thing happens for us as humans when we want to do something, we begin to rationalize. We begin to tell ourselves over and over again that things are really better than they are. And we come up with all kinds of excuses. Maybe we even spiritualize it. Have you ever done this before? You start looking for divine signs to justify the decisions that you know you shouldn't be making, but you're choosing to make them anyways. God ended that relationship, and I'm glad that he did. It was God's way in my life, like he's done many times, saying, wake up. So how about you? Where in your life this morning where you might be rationalizing, trying to convince yourself and God that something in your life is a lot better off than it really is? And how might the Spirit of God might be working right now in this moment saying, wake up. Remember what you've heard. Hold fast to it. Repent. Change your thinking. Remember the good news of the gospel. Remember that you've been set free. Remember that God has given you this gift of freedom to make a choice to honor him, to set aside what you want for what he wants. The Apostle Paul explains it this way. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for who? themselves, but rather for him who died for them and was raised again. Our heavenly father is the type of parent that loves us enough to let us choose. 
He says there's paths that you can take. He communicates his will and desire for your life. His hope is that you'll choose the path that leads to him. And yet some of us choose not to. But so much is at stake because when we say yes to Jesus, what God does is he raises us up and sends us out. Today we get to celebrate life change. And the reason why people are here is to publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus. But here's what's true. God raised up people along the way to point them to Jesus. Because the mission is to make disciples of all nations. Yes, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But do you know what he says next? Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So yes, it's seek and save the lost, but then it's equip them, raise them up, and send them out. Because there's homes in our neighborhoods full of people that don't know Jesus. There's thousands of people in our community that don't know Jesus, that are hungry for what we're about to celebrate, life change. But it starts with this. I'm not here for me. I'm here for him. So I'm going to set aside what I want for what he wants.